Imagine a tap turned on and running into a cup. Now the tap turned on and the water running out is all the water is all the water of life. You know, I think it's in the Bible, isn't it? The water of life. It's all running into the vessel of a child. It's all the play dates. It's all the exams they take. It's the it's the sports clubs they've got to do. It's all the stuff they've got to cope with. And that's coming into what they've got to do in a day. Now, for many kids, um, that there's a lot of spillage. Too much is coming into their cup and that it's spilling over the side. And that spillage, a lot of that is anxiety. A lot of that is depression. Um, a lot of that is addiction or escape routes. Um, a lot of that is defiant or pushback behavior. And I think essentially my work, and you asked what you know my work was, to use this metaphor, my work is to help us make a decision. Because do we, do we want to spend our life mopping up spillage, depression, anxiety, addiction, defiance, obsessions? Do we want to spend our lives as parents mopping up? Or do we want to turn the tap down? And, and my work is largely in both those realms, but it used to be dealing with spillage, right? As therapist, it used to be, I know, you know, one studies that and learns a lot about it, but it occurred to me, why wait for the spillage? I mean, it's obvious thought, right? Let's turn the tap down. Welcome back to the Capital Integrative Health Podcast. I am Sylvia Hazel, a family nurse practitioner at CIH and the host of our podcast today. In today's episode, we are joined by Kim John Payne, a renowned family counselor, educator, and author of the best-selling book, Simplicity Parenting, using the extraordinary power of less to raise calmer, happier, and more secure kids. We dive into the concept of simplicity parenting, which centers around reducing clutter, distractions, and unnecessary choices in a child's life to promote nervous system health and overall wellness. We explore practical ways to simplify our children's lives, including strategies for decluttering, simplifying schedules, and creating a more peaceful home environment. Payne also emphasizes the importance of slowing down and being present with our children in order to build strong relationships and foster healthy emotional development. Whether you're a parent, grandparent, or caregiver, this episode offers valuable insights and actionable tips for simplifying your family's life and creating a more joyful and fulfilling experience for everyone involved. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this enlightening conversation with Kim John Payne on Simplicity Parenting. Welcome, Kim John Payne, to the Capital Integrative Health Podcast. We are so excited to have you here today and to be able to discuss what we can do to best support the next generations. Um, before we dive into you know, all the nitty gritty, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do today and kind of what led you to do that work? Hi, Sylvia. Gosh, what a treat to speak to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my work, uh, it started off actually working in group homes for kids who were really, really struggling. Um, yeah, and I, I'm trained in psychology and child and adolescent psychology. I always add really quickly, and I'm okay now. <laughs> Just about recovered. Um, uh, but yeah, that was my earlier uh, work. Uh, um I've also done a lot of uh, um, work in trauma areas uh, around the world, um, in war-torn and refugee um, areas, and uh, camps and such, and um, an educator. 
um, and uh, a writer. So that that kind of spans um, uh, spans sort of my my work. It it like a lot of us these days, we're doing different things, but there's a thread that runs through it a little bit. And the thread that runs through it for me is is you know care for children and and tweens and teens. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, so you know, for for listeners who may not have heard um, about you or the work that you've done in the past, um, can you give us a little bit of um, understanding about potentially what your work is geared towards and focused on? Well, my work um, particularly it, it has been, um, I, I think, a, a, as a foundation. And it's interesting because. Um, where it ends up is is um, sometimes not even recognizable uh, in terms of trauma. But my work began, actually, it's interesting, you mentioned Sylvia, because my work began working with kids who were traumatized back before that term was even known. Um, and um, I was working with them in a group home during the evenings. Um, I worked from six o'clock to uh, uh, three or four o'clock in the morning. It was called the action shift because um, it was, <laughs> um, a lot would go on. Uh, but during the day, I was going to college and training and so on. I did that for years. But I was attending lectures at the time, um, and it was uh, in back in my uh, birth country of Australia. And uh, like in the United States, Australians have been through, uh, uh, have been involved in all the global conflicts. Um, you folk in the US and us in Australia have been kind of shoulder to shoulder in that all through the years um and there was a um a, a lecture being given to try and understand what was then called shell shock or trauma response and so i went along to that and the more that um the professor a wonderful professor would talk about combat veterans who weren't doing well i was thinking of the kids in my group home he was describing them and so I asked him about it and he said, well, it doesn't comply with a lot of current research. We just don't have data on that. Could you help me gather it? Right. So I was just an undergrad, but I said, well, I'll do what I can. But these kids in the group home were, were nervous and jumpy, hypervigilant, particularly over controlling. Um, and that's exactly what he was describing. And so uh, I started doing that. And then after my time was over there and I'd graduated, I, um, I, I volunteered and uh, went to, I went to working in Jakarta and in, in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, up into the Thai Cambodian refugee camps after the Vietnam War. And there again, I saw nervous and jumpy and hypervigilant children, just the same sort of thing. And I could, you know, like any of us could get our minds around that because they were they were fleeing a war and terrible dislocation and um yeah. So but they but the same stuff again, hypervigilant, over controlling, very anxious, very nervous, a lot of night terrors, uh, inability to sleep, and a lot of issues around uh uh wariness of new of new things, of new food, of new people, of new new anything. Um, so, and, and, and you'd call it, you'd almost call it obsessional kind of looping type of behavior. And you could really understand it. It, uh, all that time I was in contact with the professor back in Australia who kept encouraging me to keep gathering, keep watching, keep journaling, keep writing. And with his, uh, support, 
uh, I, I then went to study um, what, you know, what was then a very early field of trauma, of childhood trauma um, in, and teen trauma. And so I did that in the UK. I went. I moved to the United Kingdom because there really weren't many courses on it anywhere. So I just kind of put a, a course together myself a little bit in postgrad stuff. But the point of this, um, the reason I mentioned this, Sylvia, it's the third and last step. Like one step was in the group home. Then I saw the same sort of stuff in in Cambodia, in Southeast Asia. But then I saw the same sort of stuff in the UK. Through the door came kids who were nervous and jumpy and hypervigilant and over-controlling. And, and they, it, it looked for all the world like they were coming out of a war zone. Maybe it wasn't as absolutely as pronounced, but it was there. Yeah. And um, so that sort of set me on a course to try and understand what was going on, because why should children in the West that had not been through a war or my, the kids back in my group home who had been abused or they were, we did a lot of gang rescue. So to be involved in gang, oh. um, uh, why wouldn't ordinary kids from mixed socioeconomic backgrounds, mixed ethnic racial backgrounds, why did, why did they look so similar? And that, that's really what set me on this course uh, uh, um, all those, all those years ago. Cause it's, it's 30 years ago now. Yeah. Wow. So kind of pulling together, you know, connecting the dots between, you know, different childhood traumas and how they're affecting um, different sets of of children across the world. What do you think is it or was it, um, you know, that that those kids in the UK, how how was that showing up for them and, and what was the cause of that? Yeah, because then later on, when I moved to the US, it was the same deal, you know, um, uh, it's 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 a it's a really understandable question, Sylvia, and one that I tried to not answer for a long time because it was too disturbing. Yeah, you know, I thought I just I've been in war zones. You know, saying I've got a hammer, so everything's a nail. I thought I was kind of inventing it. You know, in your life, you you're involved in a lot of different environments, and you and you sort of transpose that and make some presumptions. But the more I tried to push it away, the more it wouldn't be pushed away, and it kept rebounding right back. What I um what I noticed, I did I started doing a lot of home visits because I couldn't figure it out in the office what was going on. I had a little bit of an inkling. Um, and I checked it out and I started doing a lot of home visits, a little bit like a social worker would do, um, but they were more informal, really. And I'd visit for hours sometimes in in people's homes and just and what the hunch that I had, which did pan out. Um, in and then I started more academic studies in this, was the, what these kids hadn't been exposed to war, but they were living in an undeclared war on childhood where there was just um, too much, too soon, too sexy, too young, and they were being overwhelmed. Their nervous systems were being overwhelmed. Uh, they couldn't recover. They were very controlling of siblings, controlling of um, teachers. They would try and set the agenda for their parents. They would push back hard or fall back hard, just become stubborn and refuse and be defiant. And I don't mean, you know, like clinically. I mean, it was just, they were just hard to deal with. And, and it was much harder being them than it was to deal with them. 
Um, and I started thinking that this was cumulative stress reaction. And it was like under the radar stress that built up day after day after day, because these kids were having to cope with the, a pace of life and expectations that very few of us ever had to, to cope with. The, it was things are moving so fast and there's such a deluge of information particularly through screens that were coming into tvs and so on and that's gotten even more and more of course um that their ability to assimilate all this information that's coming towards them uh and deal with all the high testing and exams uh, at school deal with all the over scheduling uh being expected to it's just the expectations of kids has gotten so high it's like we're trying to fit the first like we're trying to fit 18 years of development into the first eight years right. and uh, you know and and um we've gotten way ahead of the ability of the brain to be able to assimilate and the nervous system to assimilate that we've gotten about 900 years to be specific about 900 years ahead the brain will adapt if we capped off the expectation of kids today and didn't raise it any higher, um, a, a friend of mine who's an evolutionary neurologist said, yeah, kids' brains, we've gotten about 900 years ahead. They will not adapt. They are not. And what's happening, the the way, the, 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 the sort of picture that, you know, in terms of the literature you get is that the sympathetic nervous system is overwhelming the parasympathetic and what I mean by that, the sympathetic nervous system is what we all have, and it's a child taking stuff in. It's it's the busy day. It's all the things that are going on. It's all it's 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 all good, but there's a lot of it these days. It's it's taking in. It's being stimulated. It's reacting, taking in, stimulated, stimulated, reacting. All right, and then that's the high point. And then imagine a wave. There's, there's a place where it, it calms down, that's the parasympathetic, and that's the calming. That's the, it's almost like digesting, to put it in, like emotional digesting, where we soothe and where we calm, and kids are given a chance to decompress. And then the, then comes the next day where there's stimulating. It's a little, the way I think about it, as a picture I, I've often come back to, and it's a metaphor, um, I hope it helps, is that imagine a tap turned on and running into a cup. Now, the tap turned on and the water running out is all the water is all the water of life. You know, I think it's in the Bible, isn't it? The water of life. It's all running into the vessel of a child. It's all the play dates. It's all the exams they take. It's the it's the sports clubs they've got to do. It's all the stuff they've got to cope with. And that's coming into what they've got to do in a day. Now, for many kids, um, that there's a lot of spillage. Too much is coming into their cup, and that it's spilling over the side. And that spillage, a lot of that is anxiety. A lot of that is depression. Um, a lot of that is addiction or escape routes. Um, a lot of that is defiant or pushback behavior. And... I think essentially my work, and you asked what you know my work was, to use this metaphor, my work is to help us make a decision. Because do we do we want to spend our life mopping up spillage, depression, anxiety, addiction, defiance, obsessions? Do we want to spend our lives as parents mopping up, or do we want to turn the tap down? 
and and my work is largely in both those realms but it used to be dealing with spillage right as therapist it used to be i know you know one studies that and learns a lot about it but it occurred to me why wait for the spillage i mean it's obvious thought right let's turn the tap down how can we turn the velocity and the volume of what kids are expected to do because it's become and here's the key thing is it's become the new normal or the new abnormal it's become ubiquitous it's so widespread now that if you look around your neighborhood you see all the other kids doing it all the other kids are, are wildly overcommitted they've got all they've got all sorts of high stakes testing coming up they've got college things on their mind they've got um, and then debt that they incur through college and how do I navigate all that they've got often tensions within their own family uh, they've got a lot of school pressures coming at them as well and all that is 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 if it's too much of it is spillage and and I think for the parents I work with and I, I still have you know a family counseling practice to this to this day you know I, I'm, it's still very current is that is is it's worth pausing and just sitting and thinking where are the areas that where i could turn down the tap like what is essential in my child's life in my kid's life what is essential and what really is not essential where let's say they're playing a couple of different sports sports are one just one example of it but let's say they're on a you know a travel team and on a youth team and whatever and they're um and they're also being expected to do homework they're also being expected to do a bunch of other stuff within the family you know and 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 keep up with their their schoolwork and their grades and so on and we might say to them you know what we need to let go of is that second team is that even possible or could we even plan next year to do one sport per season and what about we have summer off or what about we have winter off what about um if 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 uh if it's all getting too much what about if we possibly can explore with the school to get you some tutoring not so much on a specific skill set area although it might be that too but just in terms of executive managing of all this schoolwork, can we help you with actually just getting this um you know back in order because it's really gotten out of whack and the pressures of it are too much um where is it socially you might explore that with a child where is it socially that you feel you're over committing now this is a tough one for a 9 10 11 year old but for a 13 14 15 year old it's really tough because they want to be with their friends a lot of the time right. i think it's worth just being being really uh, transparent with a teenager i have two teenagers right it's worth being really transparent to say to them i get it that that the stuff that's going on with your friends and you want to be engaged but where where do we actually just shut down the phones? Where do we shut down at night the, the, the engagement on what I call antisocial networking? Like what do we, where do we quieten that one down? Where do we quieten even the in-person friendships? Where do we quieten those down and being really upfront and saying, look, the, the, brain, the brain science is 
you need to have time down times in order to do some brain sweets, street sweeping. You need to detox. You need to just be down, have enough quiet time. Quiet time is not nothing. Quiet time is cleansing. And so how can we cleanse in this way, ready for the next day, so that so that you know what you're what you're doing is is more what you want to do and achieving what you want to achieve. And there's some there's some tough conversations, but I think unless we have them, our kids are just maxing out. Yeah. So um, I think that that's kind of like the perfect segue into simplicity parenting, which is, you know, one of one of those books that you've written. Um, so how would you say that, you know, one would have this conversation with kids? You know, what does simplicity parenting look like, you know, beyond just, um, you know, paring down outside activities? Is, are there other things involved in that as well? Yeah, I mentioned a couple in passing, but just to emphasize them. But to but to um to go to go back one step, one of the things I think of it as out out there in here, out there in the world, there's a lot of stuff we can't control as parents, a ton of stuff we can't control. And one of them is that the world is pretty choppy at the moment, pretty disorganized. It it just feels it feels there's a lot of pressure going on. So one of the things that a lot of parents, and I'm not just saying this just from me, because, we, you know, we've trained about 1,200 simplicity parenting coaches around the world. It's a lot. We get a lot of feedback. 1,200 is a big number. And we get a lot of feedback. And it's cross-cultural feedback. It's, 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 and it uh, crosses uh, income bracket, the, the feedback we get. One of the things that is is fairly easy to do is to declutter and organize your house. Okay. And the reason I say that is not random at all. For little children, right through to, to teenagers, um, if you have a house that has a bit more spaciousness in it and you declutter, you get rid of the stuff that is just not necessary for little kids. It's all the toys and, and, and just all the stuff they simply don't play with and they don't need. Um, but your own stuff, whenever you declutter what you're doing and you organize and things go in certain tubs or certain baskets, some parents even like to start label, labeling them, you seasonalize clothes, you know, so they're not all just out there with a teenager largely on the floor but the um but you you start to just trim down all the stuff that that we have and um what it does is it gives a feeling of spaciousness because out there there's not a lot of spaciousness out there in the world it does feel a little bit oppressive a little bit pressing perhaps yeah. so when a kid comes home just to come home to a relatively clean house with rather, even if it's a really small little place, in fact, especially if it's a small place, just to have things put away and to know where to put things away so that everyone knows that and to have it have that feeling of, okay, there's space here out there, not so much out there, not so not organized. You know, we're doing lockdown drills at school where the police are there. You know, like it just feels there's pressure. Right. So when I come home, it's almost like an out breath. 
We can't do much about the lockdown drills, for example, at school, just one example. But we can give that feeling of spaciousness at home. And one small hint, Sylvia, is a lot of parents over the years have found it important. If you do want to declutter and simplify and add spaciousness to, the, to your home, then start with your own spaces first, like do your own bedroom. Then if you have a study, do your study area. And then step two is do communal areas like kitchens and lounge rooms. And then step three, only then do a kid's space. Because if you go straight to the kid's space, I'll say, hey, don't mess with my stuff. Right. But as if you if you have modeled it in your own space and then in, in communal spaces, it, it feels good. And if you take a if you take a month or so about it, so by the time four weeks are up, the kids have, have experienced it feels really good in our lounge room. There's just much more space now. When I go to the into the kitchen and I want a pair of scissors, I know which drawer to go to, and I know they're always going to be there, more or less. You know, like I know there's this, this feeling of I I know where stuff goes, and that's very very settling. That's a little part of the turning of the tap down. It's it's not doing less stuff. It's having less stuff, knowing where that stuff is. So that's one level. Would you say then that, you know, potentially having more clutter um, is is kind of working on that sympathetic nervous system? It's like adding more stimuli and, you know, decreasing that is allowing the child to feel more safe, more into that parasympathetic side. Totally, totally. And again, you know, I work with dozens of parents every every week, and this is just this is just a really consistent piece of feedback, um, you know, for years now is and, and you know, even like if a mum decides, okay, I'm going to declutter and organize, add space. It's not just decluttering, it's organizing and adding space. And let's say my partner, if it's a husband, if it's a man, my partner does doesn't is not into it as a pack rat, right? Or, or just really likes having lots of stuff. But sooner or later, you're going to catch him coming into the decluttered space, sitting there and reading because people like being in spaces like that. They just do. It's it's human instinct to want space. You might notice on an aeroplane, it, it's, it's, it's people with money buy seats to have space. It, it's, it's, it's a desirable thing to have space. Now, rather than feel we need to earn lots and lots of money to have this huge house, we can make our smaller houses feel spaciousness. It's kind of, you know, it's just like, why wait to be rich? <laughs> right. they, they may or may not come, right? Um, the, the Another thing we noticed um, that is very soothing and drains down that cup is having uh, predictability and rhythm in homes. And we've noticed this for years now is that families that like have have like big i think of it as the big when and the little hows rhythm and i don't I, by rhythm i don't mean boring uh cold bossy routine i don't mean routine i mean warm fun connecting rhythms right that's right so there's a shape and a form to to the day um, so that there is a shape to to our meal times as much as possible. We have our meal times. We have we have breakfast together and don't do a grab and go. Or even if we do have to do a grab and go, the grab and go places are set out. The food is set out. 
you know, that there's a rhythm that as much as possible, and this is just, we do what is possible, right? But as much as possible, when a child or, or, or a kid, an older kid knows that something is coming up and then it comes up, that's very soothing. They know that we have dinner together and then we have dinner together. It's really soothing. Um, the, it's, it's a little bit like uh, for, it's not until the early 20s that the executive brain really starts to activate and myelinate properly. The big picture executive brain, the frontal lobes and the neocortex. So the big, the big picture brain, it's a really slow cooker. It takes a long time. So in the meantime, when our kids are, are growing up, little ones, you know, little kids, early childhood, middle childhood, between ages, and then later childhood, the teenagers, um, those three stages, early, mid, later childhood, it's really important that at all those stages, and it's very soothing to them when the day has got a shape to it, because their brain can't make a shape of it, not really. You think teenagers can, and then you just look at the way they live and look at what they do in their set projects at school. It's like it's all coming in at the last minute for so many kids, not all of them, but it, it, that, that larger big picture planning is not something even a teenager is good at yet. Some, some of them a little bit better than others, uh, but mostly little kids and middle years and, and, and through the teen years, when we have rhythm, we actually, it's almost like we're, we're putting a scaffolding up and we're giving them um, the, the, the executive, like we're giving them that kind of executive way of, of navigating their days. But the aim of the scaffolding is that over the years, we take it away. As their own executive functioning kicks in, we take the scaffolding away. Someone once said to me, it's a little bit like a rocket launcher. You know, like those big rockets that go go out into outer spaces. You have those big like jaws that hold it, those great big sort of uh, buttresses that hold a rocket that's about to shoot up into space. But as the rocket ignites, the, 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 the buttresses fall back and the rocket takes off, which we hope is in the late teens, early 20s. But until then, if you took the, the, the buttressing, those arms away, the rocket would fall over. There's nothing there to hold it. And the other and the other piece, just in terms of the brain science, is that when we've got rhythm in a, in a day and the day is fairly predictable, more or less, as much as we can do, um, then the amygdala doesn't start kicking in because the amygdala, the reptilian brain, the fight, flight, freeze or flop brain, that's the anxiety brain the fear brain, the fighting brain, the defiance, all that stuff. That brain can just, just stay in its place. That, that really ancient survival brain doesn't need to become activated. If, there's, if, if the, the, a child has got a bigger picture rhythm around their day and as much as we can possibly do, and even if they've got a bumpy life and a choppy life and things are not easy, having rhythm allows the, that, that bigger picture. And it says to the, to the nervous system of a child, you know what, that's a hard day. That was choppy. That I had to do this. I had to do that. There was that situation at school, which wasn't very safe or on the bus. Someone, you know, was mean to me, like whatever it was, it was going on. 
But if I come home and I know what's happening, I basically know the drill. I come home and I know there's a snack set out for me, if that's possible. I know if possible, we're going to have dinner or I help prepare dinner, whatever. But I know, I know after that, I know what we're going to do. We sit around in the lounge room. And again, if this is possible, if you're not working second shift, but you know, I know what, what's going on. Even if, even if mum or dad is working second shift, I know that. And I know what they're doing. And I know, I know the shape of my life when I get home. Because we can't control the shape of a kid's life out there in the world. Not much. Other people are in charge of that. But what we can do is give them the shape when they come home. So home is a little bit of a place, as much as we can possibly make it, um, to decompress. And any little bit we do, any little bit, will help the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, and it will help basically when you've got the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, the stimulating brain, the stimulating nervous system, and the relaxing, that's a resilient kid. When that is in balance, that's resilient. When it's out of whack, that's anxiety. And so, so one of the ways in which we can have a resilient kid uh, in our you know, in our family, and actually I think in some ways actually, so if you have a resilient family, actually it's not just for the kids, is, is, is to have as much rhythm and predictability as we can and I've mentioned this word predictability a few times. And just briefly on that, if we can sit at the end of the, like after supper, after kids have eaten is a good time to do it. Or at bedtime, if you are if you can be there with them. I still find even tween ages and teenagers like you just to sit with them a bit. Um, so they're so sweet, even great big ones. Still um, and you, you you talk about the next day, hey, this is happening, that's happening, then we've got this going on. Yeah, yeah, tomorrow, actually, yeah, that's right. And they, they get the shape of the day. You see, we're back to the executive brain. They don't really have that yet. Not so much, a little bit, but not so much. The society thinks the executive functioning of kids is, it, it presumes I, way too much. And this is just the hard science, not just my opinion. Teachers often presume really heavily that kids can handle all these projects and the timing and all these different subjects. And kids often need help with that, right? But if we preview the next day and we look ahead and even preview like what's coming up tomorrow that's hard, what are you looking forward to? What's So there's three things, what's happening, big picture, what's coming up that is hard is anything coming up hard tomorrow and the third one is are you looking forward to anything is anything good happening tomorrow and then and so you might say to it say to a 12 year old is um is anything hard coming up tomorrow and they might say yes that that teacher that really doesn't like just I don't know. She doesn't like me. Or I don't know what. Like, and, and you might just get this, like, or yes, we have to go on that stupid school trip. And like on the bus, I have to sit next to, because kids don't care where they're going. They're worried about yeah. where to sit next to. Um, and um, is there anything you're looking forward to tomorrow? Yes. When we arrive there in, in my project group, Miguel is going to be in my project group. 
and he and I work really well together, but I'm not allowed to sit with him, but we're in the same project group and we've got some really good ideas. And so you you get to hear a little bit about, about what's bugging them, what right? So three things, again, big picture, what do you look like? What's the shape of the day? Then within that, is there something that you're looking, is that is looking hard? And is there something that you're looking forward to? If we can do that for our kids, it's taking control as much as we can of the parasympathetic, of the soothing. It's turning down the tap. It's letting them go to sleep, not being so uh, anxious. And some parents have said to me over the years, isn't it anxiety producing talking about the next day with it with a kid? And my experience is not really. Maybe occasionally that might come up, you keep an eye, but not really. Not no, not so much. Just to get the shape of things before you go to bed and before you try and sleep. Otherwise, a kid's laying there and they're trying to process and, and they can't sleep and they stay up and they get up again and start playing video games or just they start distracting themselves from sleep. But the moment they get up and go to an iPad or the, the computer or their phone, that's more that's more sympathetic nervous. Then they're stimulating themselves more, which right. means the, the, the sleep is disturbed even more. Right. So that's that's a couple of a couple of ideas. And the big one, of course, is I've, I've alluded to three or four times now, is the screen overload. That's that's hard, isn't it, for all any parent. That's right. a tough one. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you you brought up several um, really interesting points there. And, you know, the work that um, we do at CIH and also that I do um, in general and specifically is um, working with people who have chronic illness and working with children sometimes who have chronic illness and just seeing the nervous systems that these children have. Um, and always trying to find ways to support them um, because knowing that the nervous system, if that is out of, out of balance, it's going to make our our time a lot harder in trying to get them well. Um, so taking all of those um, recommendations, do you think that those would be helpful for those children who have chronic illness or who have, you know, diagnosed um, disorders, whether that's ADD, ADHD, you know, any psychiatric manifestations or, you know, some of the things that we deal with, you know, we deal with, you know, chronic Lyme, chronic mold exposure, that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on that and kind of how that impacts the the body? There's, there's two things uh, there. Um, one, just dealing with the immune system and the endocrine system. Um, with the, um, when you have this, the, the nervous system uh, balanced, you know that it, when you bring it, I know, I know you can't say in whack. I don't know why you can't say it because you say out of whack. But, anyway, <laughs> but when you bring it back into whack, into balance, um, then the immune system is it doesn't become so depleted. Yeah. There've been study after study done into that with with the mind body uh, connection. That um, when a child's helped to unstress when they're helped to get the, 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 the natural flow of life, particularly if they have chronic illness, um, it's even more important to live a simple, balanced life. It's super important at that stage because then it builds their forces up, their, their, their immune system. It builds the endocrine system up, which is the, the, the flow of fluid around the body and the, 
um, uh, it, it is up building to have a child have down times is up building that yeah. could that could be a t-shirt right Sylvia <laughs> <laughs> um but the but there's there's that aspect to it then there's the other aspect of ADD ODD OCD PDD there's no shortage of D's mm -hmm. in our pathologizing society no shortage of D's but in a study that that uh, a, a clinical study I did with my colleague uh, Bonnie River into um, into ADHD, which, by the way, I, I think is a I, I know we have to use that term because it's what's what's recognized, but it's not deficit. It's a it's not attention deficit. It's attention excess. It is not a deficit. Um, in fact, what the what, what I call it is API attention priority issues and mm. a child needs attention priority support. That's because their their attention is just fine. It's just that it's not prioritized very well. But that's another conversation <laughs> at the time. But what I've found over the years, over and over and over, because that whole clinical world was my world. That's where I came from. Mm -hmm. And I'll put this in a, in a nutshell, right? Is that, and I write about this in a couple of my books, but all kids are quirky, right? They all have their funny little quirks that makes them so lovable and so um, infuriating too sometimes but but it's their little quirks that's just their little character that's who they are now what myself and all these thousands hundreds and hundreds of of, of coaches and tens of thousands hundreds of thousands really of of parents over the years that have discovered simplicity parenting and balance in their lives and this way of approaching things, what happens? I can't tell you how many times, Sylvia, a parent of a child who is being diagnosed with ADHD or OCD or ODD or whatever it is, when they simplify and balance, a parent and, and the and, and a parent does as much as they possibly can, that child almost moves along a spectrum and becomes just quirky again. Because the amygdala, the fight or flight brain, and the basal ganglia, the filtering brain, um, can now just do what they're supposed to do and no more. Now the child's not reactive, nervous, jumpy, hypervigilant. You see, we're coming back to the combat veteran. They're not behaving like combat veterans anymore. Kids with ADHD are behaving like combat veterans. Very often, you know, OCD, that is what that is absolutely known of combat veterans that aren't doing so well. So if we if we calm their lives down, give the sympathetic nervous system its chance, turn down the tap, those kids become just like the child who is diagnosed with ADHD just becomes the busy boy again, the busy child, the child who is diagnosed with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, moves back along the spectrum and just becomes the, the kid who's a bit orderly, likes things, doesn't like surprises, but is very orderly in the way. But here's, here's the thing about this though, Sylvia, and perhaps as a way to round off, because I know we have to finish up soon, but is, is the parents will, parents have often said to me, look, I feel like I've got my little child back again. Can I, should I just keep, can I just keep doing this? And I, oof, absolutely. And what they discover 
And this is again a pattern of, of just countless numbers of feedback over the years, is that it is that the same thing that is their disorder. If you keep simplifying and give a child as, as soothing a life as you possibly can with all that is beyond our control, but whatever we can do, that's when the child's gift, the same thing that is their disorder is their gift. Same thing. The, 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 the child, let's, uh, what, what's what? The child who is ODD, opposition defiance disorder, right? their, their quirk is their feisty. Right, but their gift is that they're fearless, and they'll they'll stand up for 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 the weak. They'll stand up for kids who are who are picked on. They'll they just they're socially brilliant at at, at helping. I can't tell you how many kids who've been diagnosed with with ODD simplify their lives, balance their lives, and they become the go to kids for, for that are being they'll go and and they want to be with them if they're being picked on and they'll say could you help me and or they'll just stand up for kids who are being marginalized who are being dehumanized and yet when they were being overwhelmed all they could do was fight back because the amygdala the survival brain was saying fight but when that life is calm enough and they don't have to fight for survival anymore then these kids are beautifully confident and fearless and will stand up for others, not just themselves. That's beautiful. Um, and I assume that it would be like that for a lot of those other um, quirks turned disorder. It's the same, you know, it's the same like a like an AD, um, ADD inattentive type. The child who just drifts away, can't focus, can't focus, driving their parents crazy, you know, with with just not being able to stay on task, you know, not doing well at school. They're not particularly problematic, but, you know, in terms of behavior, but just, well, that child is often, they're not fighting back. That's not fight. It's flight. They're just moving outside themselves. It's fleeing, just outside. I'm, I'm just excarnating. I'm going away. I'm not present. Right. Right. It's all too much. I'm just going to move away from it. But when it's not all too much, then that child comes back into themselves. And that dreamy child is the amazing artistic child. They can dream stuff up, but now the world is safe enough for them to manifest it, to do it. Whereas before they were dreaming, but moving away. Now they dream and they move too. And they can do um, I, the amount of the amount of art and beautiful music and the amount of just, but also artistic socially as well, caring for others. Now they can, they can notice stuff in that lovely light way and now move in and, 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 and ground it. Now, I'm not saying this is all our fault. I mean, the, I'm not saying that that kids who have any kind of disorder, it's our fault. It's not. They all have their quirks. It's not anyone's fault. Got to emphasize this. It's not. But what we can do in our own small way, and it might not be the whole story by any means. They may, may need medical support. They may need all kinds of other uh, mental health support but what we can do in our small way is is let the cup drain down 
and play our part as parents, along with the other supports that a child might need at that part, that point in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that. Um, I think, you know, we've, we've touched on a lot of things today and, and kind of talked about um, how parents can be supportive to their children in regards to helping them to ideally rebalance the nervous system, but also just protecting them as much as we can from the outside pressures of and scheduling and and whatnot. But interested to know how can listeners who are kind of um, looking to get more information on on this um, and how to support their kids, how can they learn more? What would be a good resource for them? Um, I, I know what your question is, Sylvia, and I'll come to that. But but really, the 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 resource you sh that we should be going to as parents is into our hearts and instincts, because we know this is all too much for kids. We know, in a, at a gut brain level, we know this is just just like this is weird. It's too much. So I would say the most the, the resource is is into one's own instinct. But I know what you're asking. Um, the other resource, um, it, and this is actually truly a resource, uh, is um, the, the website Simplicity Parenting that we have. So many resources there. And then the podcast Simplicity Parenting just has, it's a little podcast. It's just 10, 10 or 15 minutes. It's small little bite-sized things. That's another place to go to as well. I love that. That's great. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that um I'm sure that people appreciate the fact that it's nice and short, um, just little tips here and there. So that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I'm so grateful to you, Kim, for joining me today. This is um a a topic that is so very near and dear to my heart personally. So it was such a pleasure to be able to discuss this with you, and I'm very grateful. All right. Lovely to be invited. Thanks, Sylvia. Bye-bye for now. Take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.